Amen. You can open your Bibles up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Today we are continuing our series called The Spiritual War. Uh, And I will just let you know personally, for me, what uh, preparing this and uh, digging into it and kind of dealing with the concepts and, uh, and learning has been shaping and forming me in a really significant way. It's, uh, it's informing my prayer life. It is kind of helping me understand just uh, how deep the need for prayer is. And it's actually doing something really deep in my soul to draw me closer to the Lord. I hope the same is true for you because I have a confession to make. That confession is that, like, I am the first person to kind of just take for granted that if we could just do things better, if we could just come up with a better way or a more efficient strategy, if we could just do the right things or check the right boxes, that somehow that will solve everything for us. That, that this would kind of just resolve all of the issues for us. But the thing that we've been learning and kind of digging into more and more as we go is that you were born into a violent cosmic conflict. You were born into a violent cosmic conflict, which means that there are like realities happening in the world around you. There are things happening. There are spiritual forces that are actually at work to kind of keep you from doing that which God would desire you to become, right? Which means that whatever is required, and I hear a little bit of music. It's coming from my phone, ironically. So there we go. It's not coming from my phone anymore, Uh, this, this means that there is like this spiritual struggle going on in this world. The devil has declared war against God. And the way that he carries out that war is by making humans believe that they can somehow usurp God's authority, that they can somehow overcome God, that they themselves can become like their own God. So, so last week, Pastor Don kind of talked or walked with us through another step of this and he talked about dark practices that uh, that God said do not do these things do not engage in these practices because uh, these are things that that kind of seek to tap into that spiritual authority and work their way around God so these things that he talked about they have modern day equivalents right like fortune tellers Tarot cards, witchcraft, pagan rituals, Ouija boards, like all of these things, these are practices that if engaged in, they kind of tap into the spiritual realm. They seek spiritual powers ultimately, and this is what he helped us see, they seek spiritual powers to offer knowledge and authority that God has not granted. Right? They seek spiritual powers to offer knowledge and authority that God has not granted. They go around God because God's putting some barriers. So they go around God to try to understand or see, to, to, to think of themselves more highly. And so for these people, God becomes an obstacle to the knowledge and authority that they think they need. And so they utilize these practices to get around God. So, so these represent a one set of tools that the devil uses in the spiritual war. Today we're actually going to talk about a second set of tools. But quickly, I just want to kind of recap. Why are we talking about demons and the devil and spiritual war? And why are, are these things coming up? Well, we're talking about them because the Bible talks about them. It talks about them quite frankly. Um, so there's that. Uh, 
the other reason we're talking about them is because uh, the spiritual realm, spiritual forces are real and powerful, right? And we, in and of ourselves, do not stand a chance against them. They are stronger than we are. They have more authority than we do. And then ultimately the reason that we're talking about this spiritual war is that Jesus is king over all of the spiritual forces and at the end of the day, he wins. He wins. Amen. So like the, the reason, like the, you want to get at the real reason that we're going through this as a church? Like I just want to convince us collectively, this body, this church, I want to convince us to kind of quit playing halvesies, to quit sitting on the fence, like to, to quit kind of uh, keeping sections of our life segmented away from God's power, to, to kind of quit, uh, you know, keeping uh, certain parts away and saying that I'm going to keep this part for myself, but God get, gets that part. I actually want uh, to see us as a church, like watch him start to bring every one of his purposes to bear in every part of our lives. Not, not to make our lives easier, but to watch him get his way when we live fully for him. Like to actually see what happens when we do that. And to that end, I'm going to pray and then we'll get rolling into this this morning. So would you pray for, with me? Jesus, I recognize this morning that there are powerful things in this world and in our lives and our day-to-day -day circumstances that would seek to captivate us. That would seek to take us captive. That would seek to entrap us, Lord, to keep us satisfied with small things, to keep us from pursuing you. And Lord Jesus, my request in this time is that you would let your Holy Spirit fall in this place to convince hearts to not be satisfied with sitting on the fence. Lord Jesus, that we would see the urgency of the reality of the spiritual battle that is waging right now. That we would waste no time going as deep as we can, as far as we can with you. Lord Jesus, no words I speak will be able to accomplish this but only your word applied by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you work in this time? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, have you ever noticed how strong moods are able to infect a room? Like how if you, especially a person with maybe a stronger personality, a more outward personality, uh, how somehow when that person walks into a room, whatever they are feeling at the time has the ability to infect a room. So like you, you actually, like I get to witness this, this is kind of cool, I get to witness this when Autumn comes in the church building on Sunday morning, because there's like, she has just this very open and outward personality, she's so happy and she's running around, and then all of a sudden you look and the room is happier, like it's lighter, you know, people are joyful and they're smiling, right? So that's really cool, like you, you get a really happy person coming in and you see suddenly the room kind of transforms. Uh, parents and teachers, you notice this in dynamics with your kids. Like uh, somehow you get like one kid in the room 
who all of a sudden is just like angry or upset or something. And that has the ability to spread like wildfire throughout the place. Right? Uh, th- this is probably true for you. Like if you, any environment that you work in, the attitudes of the people that you work with, if you get one person coming in with a bad attitude, like at the beginning of your day, how much does that just like spoil the rest of your day? Right? Like this is a reality. The strongest uh, mood in the room, it becomes kind of like the air you breathe. And it, it's really interesting that, that moods, of a space can be so powerful and that also that we would be so affected by them. And what's interesting about this is that this doesn't just happen with moods, this happens with ideas too. Ideas kind of work the same way. Ideas have the ability to infiltrate a room or a space and become kind of like the air that you breathe. And they actually, they have a name for this. Like social scientists, as they've kind of evaluated this reality, they have a name for this thing that uh, ideas, when they're adopted by people in the room, they have the ability to spread. They call it social plausibility structures. Uh, so, so this is what social plausibility structures are. This is kind of what it means. Uh, when you walk into a room and say six people believe an idea that you don't currently believe. Six out of 10, six out of 10 people believe an idea that you don't currently believe. You know what's interesting is regardless of evidence, you are far more likely to believe that idea than if two out of 10 people believed that idea. Regardless of the facts presented to you, regardless of the things that are told to you, if six out of 10 in the room believe it, you are far more likely to believe it than if like two out of 10 believes that idea. So let's, uh, then let's point something else out. Just like moods and ideas can infect a room, so just like Autumn can like walk in and smile and everybody's suddenly light and happy, right? Um, just like that, just like they can affect a room, uh, ideas and moods have the ability to actually infect a society and affect a society. They can become like the air that you breathe in a culture, especially if you are able to find really powerful ways to express these moods and ideas. So uh, Colossians 2, verse 8. We are in the book of Colossians this morning, chapter 2, verse 8. This is what Paul writes the church in Colossae. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That word captive, this is a word used by uh, an ancient Greek literature, and what the word actually means is it, it refers to the plundering of a cargo ship. Like what, what happens is out on the sea, the pirates come and they kind of like tie everything up. They stop the ship, they tie people to the poles and they go in and they take whatever they want. And they leave the ship there kind of to be wrecked or uh, the people to be lost at sea. So, uh, so this is what he's talking about. Apparently there are philosophies that can take you captive, that can plunder you. So philosophy, this is what the word philosophy means, literally. It means a close friendship with ideas and ways of understanding. Philosophy is a combination of two words. The word philo, philo means uh, love or friendship, an affection, a familial affection. 
And uh, Sophia is the word we commonly use for wisdom, but is also used for ideas and ways of understanding. So philosophy is a close friendship with ideas and ways of understanding. Now, this is really interesting because, like, if you look at the Bible, wisdom and understanding are a really good thing. Like, they're a thing to be sought after. Like, there's something that is upheld highly. But apparently, we need to be on guard because there are some categories of ideas and ways of thinking and understanding that parade themselves around as the right ways to understand. But at the end of the day, they're what Paul calls empty deceit. So... Um, Get this, like there are ideas present, swirling all, all around us, and their goal ultimately is to enslave and plunder our lives. So, so just a bit of a warning, because you might think, as I say the word philosophy, you might go, oh, philosophy, like that's something that Greek people did a long time ago. They sat around in like little groups up on mountains and they debated things. And so that was something for them that's not as much of a concern today. We don't sit up on mountains and we don't debate things. Like that's the job. You might even say like that's the job of academic people, right? They do that in colleges and universities and we'll kind of let them do that there and, and enjoy their talking about higher thinking and that kind of stuff but it's actually a bigger concern so like you might think okay that's that's for some other space some other place in time it's not for me I'm just like you know I work a nine-to-five I just kind of go about my life this is not a big concern um, it's actually like in all reality it is a bigger concern for the average person any person who works anywhere at any time, like it's a bigger concern for you in this room, the person who would kind of walk and go to the store and uh, go attend church and then go to work. Like it is a bigger concern for you today than it has been for common people throughout history. Let me tell you why it's a bigger concern for you today than it has been for people throughout history. Because philosophy didn't start in kind of these ivory tower sort of places, right? People kind of uh, who were rich and able to take care of themselves sat around together and they just talked about good ideas for a long time. But then interestingly enough, um, especially within the last 250 years, uh, things came out called periodicals, periodicals like newspapers and magazines. And, and those are things that began getting delivered. And you know what? Society, actually, we learned how to read, too, which is a really good thing. It's a good thing to know how to read. And so, so these periodicals come out, and ideas start getting transferred to uh, common people from ivory towers, right? And then, uh, and then a little bit later, maybe, let's say, the 1950s, 1960s, we run into this thing called the 24-hour news cycle. Now, how... Like, what, honestly, could be going on in the world that you need news running 24 hours to keep you informed about what happens? But that is what happened in the 1950s or 60s. We got the 24-hour news cycle where people were literally constantly transferring information down from these places we think of as the ivory towers, right, into common society. What happened after the 24-hour news cycle? You got a social media feed on your phone. And it has not stopped transferring a variety of ideas and concepts to you like from the moment it was shaped. You have, you have in your pocket 
right now. I mean, we just experienced it at the beginning of my sermon. A song was playing on my phone, and I didn't even know it was happening, right? You have in your pocket an endless media feed with endless kinds of ideas available to you, more than at any other point in history. No society has had to sift through competing perspectives and ideas like we have to sift through these ideas. And the majority of that information, just for what it's worth, is grounded in ideas and ways of understanding that are intended to plunder your life. If you're a Christian, then what they do is they seek to plunder the work that God wants to do. So where do these ideas come from? Colossians 2 verse 8 says, These ideas, these philosophies, these empty deceits, they are according to human tradition. Okay, so like these, uh, these are concepts that humans have lifted up for a long time and they kind of pass down through the ages. And well, where does human tradition come from? According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You know what? These, it means that these ways of understanding, they did not just like suddenly appear out of nowhere. Right? They have a point of origination, and they are not simply ideas. They are spiritual weapons. Right? They are formed by spiritually evil beings and inserted into societies to take as many captives as they possibly can. So the reality that, that this puts in front of us this morning is that while it's unlikely that you will ever, like the people in this room, that any of us will ever try to verbally communicate with a demon, right? there is a rarely a day that goes by where the demonic realm does not attempt to influence you with messages that originate from them. They're, they're communicating with you verbally all the time. They're sending words and messages constantly. So like, let's pull back for just a second. My job, what I do, what I am called to do, is it a pastor's job to identify philosophies and worldviews and theologies and ways of understanding that threaten to plunder our local church? That's one of the responsibilities that I have. This is a tradition that runs all the way back into the New Testament. The calling of elders and shepherds and uh, people who are assigned to congregations, they're, they're primarily, one of the things they're primarily called to do is be able to identify ways of thinking that could lead us astray. Like from the very beginning of the, the church, false and destructive ideas have crept in and they will continue to creep in until Jesus comes back. So, like, let's talk about how this works for us. This creeping in works for us in our context. We have philosophy. We've already defined philosophy, but it kind of exists. And it gets transferred in our society through two main vehicles. There are two main vehicles that society transfers. It transfers through ways of life and ideologies. Philosophy transfers into our society where people naturally accept it through two main vehicles, ways of life and ideology. So let's talk about ways of life for a second. Ways of life are the patterns and processes by which people operate. So some examples of this. The American dream. The American dream is a way of life. It says this is what success looks like. 
that you get a nice house, that you have your own yard, that you have kids that you're able to financially provide for them, that you're able to build a future and a retirement income for yourself, that one day life is going to be amazing because you're not going to have to work anymore and you're just going to be able to go play golf or entertain yourself with hobbies, right? Like this is the American dream. Uh, entertainment gluttony is a way of life. It is like one thing that a lot of people I know live for. They live to be entertained, to find information, to, get, to, to, to see another story, to see something play out on the screen, to be oohed and awed by something that they're uh, playing on the video game or whatever it might be. Entertainment gluttony is another uh, way of life. Living for the weekend is a way of life that is rampant in our society, right? Like this is just like, yeah, I work and I work and I work and I uh, kind of get some evenings, but mostly like I get the weekend to enjoy my life, to have fun, right? Because if I can't have fun, then what's the point of life anyway, right? So these are ways of life in our society. Each of them, if ascribed to, they carry empty understandings of the world. Now, for what it's worth, it's good to work a job and provide for a family. Like, that is a good thing. Like, entertainment, even, like, you can enjoy entertainment. Like, these are, these are gifts from God. Like, having fun is a good thing, right? Like, these, again, each of these have little bits of good in them, but when they become the ultimate goal, they become destructive, they carry empty understandings of the world. They have messages about where ultimate meaning and significance lie. They tell their own stories about where hope is found. And ultimately, they desensitize you to God and his rightful place in the world. Okay, so that's ways of life. Let's talk about ideologies now. Ideologies are the perspectives informing how people interpret the world. You may have heard a word like worldview before. Ideologies and worldview are very similar. It's like the glasses that help you understand the events that come to you. It's how you see the world. So um, let's talk about some examples of ideologies. Political parties have their own kinds of ideologies. Like they have their own way that they are trying to get you to see and interpret the world. Now, are there valuable things in both political parties that actually like could be drawn out and you could see as like having a societal good or societal value? Absolutely. But if you follow any political party to its ultimate end goal, it is not going to lead you where Jesus wants to lead you. Right? So political parties, false religions do this. Modern social movements do this. They each kind of have their own ideas about what is good. So each of them, they have messages about ultimate meaning and significance. That doesn't mean that there's no truth found in any of them, right? Each one could probably have some element of truth in it. Like even uh, false religions have a degree of understanding of some of them of human nature and, uh, you know, what human beings kind of, what their interactions should look like, right? There's a degree of truth in each of these. It doesn't mean that they don't have aspects that have value, but at the end of the day, each of them are grounded in ideas that want to tell you lies about where hope is found, that want to tell you lies about ultimate meaning and significance, and that want to desensitize you to God and his rightful place in the world. So that's kind of the transfer. Philosophy moves to ways of life and ideologies, but that is not the end of the transfer. There's one more kind of step into this. Because from 
ways of life and ideologies, they both produce something that I've coined the term and the guys that I prepare with coined the term cultural mantras, right? And these are the repeated and widely accepted truth claims in a given society. And this is what I mean by that. Like, you notice when people say these mantras, you cannot argue with them. You cannot move the conversation forward. It, the, it, speaking one of these mantras instantly shuts down the conversation. And if you question them, you become the outcast. Right? So, so it's really enticing to use these statements to justify yourself and your perspective. And it's actually like not hard to be taken captive by them because each one of them has its own element of truth in it. And each one of them helps you to judge God, to make yourself the authority, and actually become your own God. So let's talk about what some of these cultural mantras are. How could a loving God let this happen? As soon as somebody speaks that, there's no arguing with this perspective. And our goal shouldn't be to argue, right? But, but there's a reality like when somebody says this, there's no moving past that. And so I just like, I have some questions to, to challenge more than come outright and say, let me show you why this is wrong. I just have some questions. So with this one, is it possible that God's ways are higher than your ways? I'll only be young once. I picked this one because this was my cultural mantra when I was like 18 or 19, right? I, I wanted to have fun. And in my mind, there was like a limited time in my life where I would actually be able to have fun. And like, you don't have to think too hard. I was a kid in college. You know what fun looks like, right? So I like, that's what I wanted to do. I had defined fun for myself. And the way that I justified myself is I'm never going to be this young again. Right? I'll only be young once. Is it possible, and this is the question that I had to wrestle with, is it possible that God can bring you more joy and fulfillment than you can bring you? Right? Love is love. This instantly shuts anything down. Like, what does that even mean, love is love? Well, apparently, uh, it is like, uh, here's a question. Is it possible that God has a better insight on love than you do? Live your truth, right? <laughs> Again, like how many kinds of truth are there? How many different versions of truth are there? Apparently, there are as many versions of truth as there are individuals in the world. So the question is this. Is it possible that God can more clearly determine truth for you than you can? How about we're all God's children? Right? This is something that's said often. And there is like, again, there's an element of truth here. We are all created in the image of God. But the people that God calls his children, John chapter 1 tells us about this, everyone who believes in Jesus is called a, children, a child of God. The, the one who believes in Jesus, who is able to then receive the promises of the Father, that he will work everything together for your good. How about, uh, oh sorry, so the question there is, is it possible that God might actually hold some people accountable for rejecting him. Uh, it's my life, I'll, I'll live how I want. Like, is it possible that God can make a better master for you than you can make for you? Again. So each one of these mantras, they want to say, uh, in, in answer to the question, is it possible? They want to say, no, it's not possible 
This is just how it is. And as they do that, they keep people enslaved and captivated, never knowing what abundant life with their creator looks like. And the more we, as people who have been adopted by our creator, play with these things and interact with them and adopt them, the more we actually continue playing with dead things. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 says this. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Do you remember that comment I made earlier about the air we breathe? These things become like the air we breathe. Well, what this is saying is that there is a person in charge of that air. Uh, There is somebody behind that air. He is standing there and he's trying to make this air work so that he can captivate more and more people. The spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. These things become like the air we breathe because they have been intentionally put there. And even after you come to Jesus, there's still the possibility of you becoming captivated by these ideas. So I want you to watch how Paul like solves this issue. How he leads them away from the empty deceit. Watch what he does. So he goes forward from Colossians 2 verse 8 and this is what he says. He says, these things are not according to Christ. And then he talks about Jesus. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Paul's answer to deal with each of these philosophies is not to tear them apart and try to uh, kind of sift through them. His answer to false belief is to point the people to Jesus. He wants them to be impressed with the person of Jesus. He wants them to remember the work of Jesus. He wants their hearts to worship Jesus because as they recognize Jesus for who he is, the Holy Spirit does something. He begins untangling the ropes that have been used to bind us. Begins restoring what has been robbed. He takes those of us who have been taken captive by lies and he sets us free, not just to know, but to believe in our hearts what is really true about Jesus. So it says this fullness of deity This fullness of deity, it speaks of like these captivating ideas, they may have originated in the minds of demons, but Jesus is God over all the spirits. He has the fullness of authority over them. And Colossians 2 verse 10 speaks further of that. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So remember, the governing law, this is something we talked about a couple weeks ago, the governing law in the spiritual realm is authority. And not only is Jesus God, but he has given you real truth. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you've received something with power over the lies. He has charge over demons. Therefore, let him be the source of truth for you. And the idea is, like, since you believe he is who he says he is, then let him actually be the authority in your life. And and when you do this, like when you submit to him as authority, when you bend your knee, when you actually surrender to him as king, this is what happens. He frees you from the power of these lies that are seeking to plunder you. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ. He's using circumcision as a metaphor, and this is what he's saying. So like, just like think for a second. What do mantras and philosophies and ideologies, what do these things do? They enable you to justify yourself, to blame others, and decide for you what is best. And what does Jesus do? He says, die to yourself. Or more technically, according to this passage, let me cut off the parts of you that are already dead. Let me cut off what is dead so that, in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Let me cut off that which is dead so that I can live my life through you. Like This is our transformation. Like We're constantly setting aside what is dead so that the Holy Spirit can bring life through us so that his truth becomes our truth. His way of thinking becomes our way of thinking. He becomes our source of identity. He determines what is right. He shapes the desires of our heart. He determines our priorities. He becomes the affection of our hearts. Paul is saying like, yeah, these things, they, these philosophies, they want to captivate you. The enemy, he wants to captivate you with these ideas. But even now, because of what God has done for you and your salvation in Jesus, God is helping you. You are being conformed in faith into a new image, a new way of thinking. So verse 13 and 14, this is what it says. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, I mean, what is he doing? He's just going like one thing after another after another. Here's Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. Don't lose sight of him. Keep him in front of you. If you don't want to be taken captive, see Jesus. And you know what? We can trust him. We can trust him, actually, to not just have authority in a small space in our lives, to not just have authority over a few things or a few segments of our time during the week. We can actually trust him to have authority over everything. Why? Because he's so good. He's so forgiving and gracious Right? He's not hanging our wrongs over our head and he's so for our life and our well-being and he's so invested in making us whole that he would take every sin committed by us, every failure of ours, every lie we believed, every rebellion we committed, every rejection of his authority and he would take it and he would pay for that debt in his body on the cross. And then from that place he would extend good, good gifts to every person who follows him. Right, The liars, the demons, what they do is they seek to convince us that we are the best authority for our lives. They seek to pit us in comp competition against each other. They seek to create division and they seek to ultimately destroy us by getting us to reject the source of all life. But Jesus dies and through his death gives us a chance to be made whole. He can be trusted. So verse 15, it says this. 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you want to render demons powerless in your life, if you want to render their lies meaningless, if you want to make a mockery of them, reject their, li- their lies and surrender every piece of your life to Jesus. Don't leave one space untouched. Right? Confess whatever is keeping you from your surrender. Ask God to search your heart because you know what? Sometimes those lies are deeply rooted and you can't see them at the surface. It requires laboring in prayer. It requires reading the word and letting the, the sword of the word divide joint and marrow. They go deep into your heart and show you the lies that you are believing. And when you see them, confess them. When they surface, reject them. Leave them at the foot of the cross and surrender to Jesus. When you do this, your life becomes a testament to the demons of how little power they have. Of how utterly powerless they are. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, take every thought captive to biblical authority. So Jesus, since Jesus is our king, Jesus believed the word of God and considered it to be authoritative for him as he lived his life on this earth. So you know what that means for us. If Jesus is my king, then the word needs to become my filter for how I interpret the world. The word needs to become my authority that I am submitted to. Instead of being captivated by these ideas, we need to plunder these ideas and leave them at the feet of Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says this. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Right? So, so what he's saying is that instead of you being plundered by the ideas, you go and you tie up the ideas with the word of God and you plunder them. Right? So, so this requires actually that we all become students of our Bibles. Right? It requires that we become biblically literate. And you might say, okay, yeah, I, I hear you, Pastor. Okay, but I'll, like, I'll stick to Jesus. I'll just stick to Jesus, okay? Here's the thing. There might be very subtle lies that your heart has bought into. And if you don't spend time with the word and reflecting on the word and understanding and letting him kind of lay your heart bare, actually letting the word read your heart instead of you just reading the word, right? Letting, letting him show you what is true and kind of challenging the natural lies in your heart. If you're doing that, then, then you could be buying into lies without knowing it. So, take every thought captive to biblical authority. Number two, we must reject demonic ideas if it ends in stealing, killing, or destroying. It is a demonic idea. So let's talk about some demonic ideas that are obvious to everyone. Like Islamic fundamentalism. Right? And kind of the atrocities that occur under that 
uh, those regimes. They demean women. They steal children. They teach them to hate. They glorify violence. Like these are things that culturally for us, we can look at that and go, okay, that is very obviously like not good. That very obviously destroys. That is very obviously not from a good place. Uh, China's one-child policy. For a long time, people in America have been able to look at that policy and go, that is, that, that is not good. That is from a place of evil. It led to abortion and murder and abandonment of kids, right? That is not a good thing. But there are some culturally prominent and less obvious ideas that have demonic origin. Right? And I'm not going to stand up here and list them all for you, but let me give you a couple of examples. Right? Abortion and acceptance of abortion. It is an idea that has a demonic origin. It's advanced through indoctrination, through cultural mantras, through social pressures. Uh, It says that to create any boundary is oppression of women, that she can make her own decision, that women can make their own decision. It's their body, it's their freedom. But at the core of it, it justifies the murder of an innocent in order to set another person free. And what society is that just to justify the murder of an innocent person to set somebody else free? Critical theory. Uh, Some of you may have heard the term critical race theory or something like that before. I'm not going to dig into it that far. I just kind of want to tell you what it does. In its current cultural form, what it does is it takes groups of people and it frames one group as the victim and one group as the victimizer. And what it's actually trying to do is switch them. Because this group has been the victim for so long, they get to become the victimizers, and this group should become the victims, right? And that, again, it's pitting people against each other. It's creating division. It's creating destruction, and we need to be aware of these things. Now, are there good ideas to be found within some of the things that are said in those concepts? Absolutely, but if we buy into it wholesale... Then we submit to destruction, and at every turn, demonic ideas are seeking to infiltrate. And you know what? This is, I'm not talking to you about this so that you can go to your lost friend and argue with them about how wrong their ideas are. I'm telling you this because the biggest win for the enemy with any of these ideas is to get Christians to buy into them. Because if Christians take ownership of them, then he plunders the church and he plunders what we're called to become. Number three, so church, have unbelievable compassion on the lost. Right, is they, they're in a fog, right? The Holy Spirit, like, they can't see, right? And you are inclined to say, and I know because uh, I hear it and we process together, like, you're inclined to go, how can they act like that? How can they use that language? How how can they actually believe that? How can they advance that perspective? Why are they buying into that? And it's like this kind of thinking turns everybody who doesn't believe and act like you into an enemy. And they're not your enemy. Your enemy is the one who's planting the lies. And the Holy Spirit has shown you things in Jesus that they are not yet able to see. Your anger will do nothing to compel them. In fact, it just justifies you and your own perspective. So pray for them. Befriend them. Love them. 
Show them Jesus in your words and actions. Like this is the only thing that has any hope of undoing the lies. Finally, number four. Let us know what's today. What's better? Truly following Jesus or your own way of life? Right, like at the end of the day, as we deal with this, we're all kind of dealing with lies and ideas that have been deeply rooted in our hearts. And the longer that we hold on to parts of our life and refuse to submit to Jesus, the more we give influence and authority to somebody else. So what about Jesus do you find so untrustworthy that you think your way is better than his? This week, I just tell you about personally how I've been dealing with this. This week, I have been praying, and Jesus has been showing me some things about my way of life. Showed me that I avoid taking risks when he wants me to take risks because I'm afraid of the ramifications. So what's the lie? What's the lie that I believe? The lie that I'm believing is that whatever results will be they're bigger than what Jesus can handle. That's, that's different from what Jesus tells me in his word, right? Another thing that he's been showing me, um, I've been keeping Jesus pretty compartmentalized in my life, right? Like I have my prayer, and I have my Bible study, and I have my time preparing the sermon, Right? And I have these sections of my life and I keep Jesus in his box here and then I take him and I put him in his box here and I take him and I put him in his box here. And, uh, and, and so I let Jesus have kind of authority over the spiritual things. Spiritual things. And when I do that and I keep my life compartmentalized and I say, yeah, you can have this and this and this and this. Right? What's the lie that I'm believing? The lie that I'm believing is that I think I am a better master over those other spaces of my life than Jesus is. The reason I tell you that is not so you can, like, just, I can make a big deal about myself and talk about. The reason I tell you that is so that you can actually go to God and prayer and ask him to show you what lies you are believing. Because there are lies that are keeping you from full surrender to him. And that's what he wants. That's how he's going to accomplish his purposes. Right? That's how he's going to get his way in this church for what it's worth. We can come up with all the strategies and name changes and ideas and uh, you know, ways to say things we want to in the world, right? But if we are not fully surrendered, he's not going to get his way. So take time. Pray. Ask him to show you what about your way of life. Why do you talk to other people about other people so much? Is it because you can't trust Jesus to take care of it? Is it because you want to feel superior to those other people? Why do you spend so much time with entertainment and so little time with Jesus? Is it because you think Jesus is boring? I've had to confess that one recently too. There's no shame in these things, but church, we need to look out for the lies because what they want to do is they want to take us captive and Jesus wants to set us free. Would you pray with me, please? So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would press upon the hearts of people in this room. Press upon my heart. 
to not let these confessions just be words that I say. But Lord, let them produce the fruit of action. Produce the fruit of surrender. And I pray that for the people in this room too. Lord, would you lead us into prayer with you to discover the lies in our heart that would keep us from fully surrendering to you? God, help us to trust Jesus. We are so prone to trusting ourselves, to lifting ourselves up, to justifying ourselves and believing we can handle things better than he can. Lord, undo those lies. Let us give everything to Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I pray that as people leave today that they they just wouldn't leave going, okay, that was another sermon and and, uh, something I enjoyed, right? Like, may that not be the case. May we go from here actually seeking to be introspective and seeking to understand what are the lies that we've believed? What do we need to lay down at your feet? Holy Spirit, we trust you to do this. And this morning as we respond in worship, recognizing that you are who you say you are, Jesus, would you lift up our hearts and would you inhabit the praises of your people? We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.